Our Father, we thank you for being a God who cares deeply for us. Though we are undeserving, though we are lowly, you love us. And you guide us with your word. And so, Lord, as we come to a passage today that is controversial, that is offensive, that is raunchy, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see how this applies to us and that you would use this time to draw us closer to yourself for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be finishing up Genesis chapter 19 today. So turn to Genesis chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 30 to 38. Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. It was one of the worst catastrophes in modern history. And prior to the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, the greatest man-made catastrophe in the history of the United States was remembered as the Johnstown Flood. In a river valley that was in the heart of Pennsylvania, scores and scores of people who were members of this very affluent, very wealthy, very prosperous society met their death as a result of heavy rain and a dam that hadn't been maintained properly for far too long. The South Fork Dam had been constructed very quickly in 1881 as landowners saw an opportunity to make a lot of money. They were going to to, to hold back the waters of a nearby lake so that they could create a sporting club just down the river for wealthy people who either lived in or who were visiting nearby Pittsburgh. So there was a lot of money to be made. There was a lot of money to be made, so they had to build it quickly. And so just eight years later, maybe it shouldn't be too surprising given how fast they built it. Eight years later, in 1889, there were several days of heavy, heavy, intense rain like they hadn't seen in in many years. And so the water levels in the lake rose to levels that they also had not seen in many years, which put an enormous strain on the dam. Small cracks had been noticed, but hadn't been maintained, hadn't been repaired, and suddenly these small cracks became big cracks, and before long, the dam began to disintegrate. And so fully aware that the dam was going to completely collapse, officials were sent downstream to warn the citizens of nearby Johnstown to evacuate the city, but they'd heard warnings like this before because the waters of the river had raised before. And so they put most of their belongings in their second stories and waited for the water to pass. The warnings to evacuate went unheeded. But the residents of Johnstown had never faced a wave of 20 million tons of water coming at them. And so most perished. Very, very few survived as a massive wave that was filled with all kinds of debris, trees, rocks, buildings, wood, all kinds of stuff came crashing through the city, destroying everything in its path. 2,209 people lost their lives that day. 
and every death was preventable because the defects, they were aware of them. They were aware of the defects, but they didn't maintain them. It was all preventable. If the dam had been maintained, the catastrophe never would have happened. And if you think about it, this story is a lot like the story of Lot. This is a a picture, in a way, of Lot's life. His life, from our perspective, could be summed up in just one word. Unchecked. He didn't maintain it. He, He didn't do upkeep in his spiritual life. He made one foolish mistake after another, and if if all we had was the book of Genesis to go by, we might just chalk it up to man's fallen and foolish nature that Lot would have such a a sad story, that his life would end in such a sad way. Psalm 49.10 says, "...the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others." And is that not Lot's life? That would almost be a summary of Lot's life, but... Peter does tell us that Lot was a righteous man who was distressed to the depths of his soul by the sins and by the things that he saw going on in the culture around him. Nevertheless, despite the fact that he was distressed, despite the fact that he was a righteous man, Lot kept his life unchecked, unmaintained. And so it's really not much of a surprise that his story would end with one of the one of the most disturbing, one of the most grotesque, revolting, you know, troublesome, pick your word, pick pick whatever word works for you. One of the most disgusting passages in all of scripture. James Montgomery Boyce was one of the great preachers of the 20th century, and he noted that when he was consulting commentaries for preaching on this passage, uh, some of the commentaries completely skipped this passage altogether. They just went straight to chapter 20 instead of making any commentary on this passage. He also noted that he found one commentary that said that no decent preacher would ever preach this passage because it contains material that isn't appropriate for church. Now that is troubling. That is troubling because if a, if a pastor, if a commentator decides to skip over it, decides that it's not worth preaching or discussing, he's vetoing what God has spoken. And we must remember, when we come to a passage like this, we have to remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. Even the end of Genesis chapter 19. Even this disgusting passage. Personally, I would not want to have to stand before the Lord one day and have to give an account for why I decided to veto His holy counsel. Instead, I fully trust that even this passage, even the most disgusting and disturbing passages in the entire Bible were given for our sanctification, for our growth in Christ-likeness, and for our edification. And Lot's life is a warning against leaving your spiritual life unchecked. For those who might argue that this material, a story about incest, is unsuitable for children... I have to ask you, where where do you want your kids to learn about stuff like this? Because they will. 
Do you want them to learn about it in school? Do you want them to learn about it from a, a secular worldview? Do you want them to learn about it on TV? Do you want them to learn about it on the internet? Do you want them to learn about it by lewd jokes from friends? Where do you want your kids to learn about it? Do you want them to learn about it from the Word of God? I think when you put it that way, it's actually a pretty easy decision. So our passage today is found in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. And the title of this message is The Legacy of a Life Left Unchecked. The central theme that we're going to see in our passage today is that every major sin is rooted in what seemed like small compromises at the time. I'll say it again. Every major sin is rooted in what seemed at the time like just small inconsequential compromises. The last we saw of Lot, he had been rescued from the city of Sodom by a pair of angels who dragged him against his will outside of the city before God poured his wrath out on Sodom. And by, by rescued, I mean, that's, that's kind of a funny term to say that they rescued him since it was against his will. Despite clear instructions not to look back, We'll remember that his wife did look back and God judged her on the spot, turning her into a pillar of salt. And so at this point, all Lot has to his name is his two daughters. That's it. He has lost everything else. All the wealth that he had accumulated over the past decades, it's all gone. All he's got are his two daughters. So what's going to become of them? We actually find out in chapter 19, verse 30, where we read this, said, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Lot becomes a caveman. Lot had bargained with the Lord, if you remember. The Lord had instructed him to head for the hills, but Lot had insisted that the Lord allow him to go and relocate in the city of Zoar, which meant small, basically indicating that he wanted to continue his sinful pursuit of worldly treasure just on a smaller scale. But here we read that he turns out to be afraid to live there. He's afraid to live in the city of Zoar. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think he might have been afraid to live in Zoar? I suppose all that we can make here is an argument from silence, but I don't think it's unreasonable to conclude that the reason he was afraid to live there is because he immediately saw that the people of Zoar weren't any different from the people of Sodom. And so he kind of drew a connection and feared for the worst. He feared losing everything. And so instead of permanently settling in this small town of Zoar, pursuing wealth in the smaller city on a smaller scale, he goes and he lives in a cave. He becomes a cave dweller in the mountains with his daughters. And given that he lived in fear there, he lived in fear in Zoar, one principle that we sort of find between the lines here is that the Lord may allow His children to wander but He will not allow us to have peace when we do. He may let us wander astray, but He won't let us find peace when we do. If you're a child of God who's straying from God's will, seeking happiness, or seeking comfort, or seeking fulfillment by your own understanding apart from God's will, 
God is a loving Father who will not let you have peace with it. So I guess it's kind of hard not to feel some sympathy for Lot. It's kind of hard not to feel sorry for him. He pursued worldly treasure for so so many years. He gained affluence. He gained influence. But we have to see that his pursuit of worldly treasure led him where the pursuit of worldly treasure ultimately leads. To despair. First of all, because it's never enough. He, he has a long, long history of compromise, Lot does. A, a little bit of a compromise when he moved just outside of Sodom. Another little one when he moved into Sodom. Years of small compromises when he lived in Sodom, feeling like it would be okay to live there and to be a part of this culture, a part of this community, just so long as he didn't participate in their sins. And so he has this history of planting seed after seed, after seed of compromise. And so it's really no surprise that he's now going to reap the fruit of compromise. Hosea once said of Israel, Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, he said, they sow the wind and they shall reap a whirlwind. You sow a burst of air, you reap a tornado. Don't be surprised. These are the types of consequences that Lot is facing. So let us take this as a warning not to leave our spiritual lives unchecked. Not to, maintain, not to, to fail to maintain our spiritual walk with the Lord. Let us take this as a warning that every major sin is going to be rooted in what seemed like small compromises at the time. Now, just so we're all on the same page when I say major sins, by the way, I'm talking about from, from our perspective, things that we would consider to be major, things like murder or, or adultery or, or incest, for a few examples. You know, those are, those are major from a human perspective. So we're talking, when we, say, when we say major sins, we're talking about the kind of thing that could maybe cost you your reputation. Or maybe it could even, maybe it could even cost you your job. Maybe... If it's bad enough, it could even cost you your freedom. You could get thrown in jail or prison. But what we have to see is that these types of things, major sins, don't happen out of nowhere. They don't just pop up out of nowhere. They don't don't happen in a vacuum. No, these types of things develop over a period of time. And they're rooted in what seemed like at the time just... A minor compromise here and a minor compromise there. And before you know it, you're 10,000 miles away from where you started. And what has all of this cost Lot? Almost everything. Almost everything. It cost him all the wealth he had. It cost him all the influence that he spent years building up in Sodom. It cost him his wife. And so now he's living in a cave with his two daughters. And if you've ever been inside of a cave, you know how dark a cave is. It is the darkest place imaginable. It's dark. In the darkness of this scene, it's in a cave at night. And so the darkness of this scene is kind of a reflection of Lot's soul. Now before we continue, some of you may be thinking, okay, he headed to the hills, so is, is he finally being obedient to the Lord? Remember, the angels had instructed him and his family to go and live in the hills back in chapter 19, verse 17. And so it might look on the surface like that's what he's doing. 
but it's not. No, at first glance, it, it might look like it, but when we take everything into consideration, we actually see that he ended up going the opposite direction that he had initially been instructed by the Lord through the angels to go. Think about it. The angels had told Lot to flee to the hills. Which direction do you think they were most likely to tell him to go? Remember, he had come from Abraham's camp, which was to the west. And in the Bible, west is a, a literal direction, yes, but it also has some symbolic significance. Going east was a picture of going away from God, while going west was a picture of returning to God, which is why the door to the tabernacle was on the east side of the tabernacle, because if it's on the east side, which way do you have to go to go in? You have to go west. So, did Lot go west? It doesn't look like it. The evidence that he didn't seems pretty conclusive. This chapter is going to conclude with the birth of two people named Moab and Ben-Ami. And given the likelihood that Lot had gone to the land that would eventually be possessed by the descendants of these two sons, it tells us that Lot went east instead of going west. He went the opposite direction that the Lord had instructed him. Abraham's camp was to the west. Lot went east. And we might wonder, why in the world would Lot, after having lost everything and, and, and not been comfortable in Zoar even, why at that point did he not return to Abraham's camp where he started out? I mean, wouldn't that have made the most sense? He's got nothing except his two daughters. He's, he's got nothing. And so it absolutely would have made the most sense to go to the nearest relative, to go, to go find Abraham. But that would have required that Lot humble himself. Eat some humble pie and confess that he had been in sinful compromise all along. You see, when people are in sin and they don't want to come to terms with it, they don't want to come to the point where they have to repent and confess, they will intentionally and deliberately go the opposite direction that God would have them go before they put themselves in a situation where they must bring their sin to an end. Let me say that again. When people are in sin and they do not want to come to terms with their need to confess and to repent, they will intentionally and deliberately go in the opposite direction that God would have them go. Even saved people? Even saved people. Even a righteous man like Lot. God will let you wander astray, but He will not let you enjoy it. And He will be working all things to bring you to the point to discipline you until you are eager to confess, to repent, and to be restored. And so what we see here is that Lot does actually the exact opposite of the prodigal son. If you're, if you're familiar with the, the parable of the prodigal son, you know that the younger son, he, he goes into this season of rebellion, he takes all of his inheritance, and he walks away from his father thinking that he, he's on his own. He, he, he walks away from the father. A picture of us walking away from God. He took his inheritance and, and, and blows it all. He loses it all, living well beyond his means. But the prodigal son eventually came to his senses. 
There's no indication that Lot did. He, he admitted his condition. Lot never did. He confessed his need to return home. Lot would not admit any of this stuff. He wouldn't confess his need to be reconciled. He wouldn't confess his condition. He wouldn't confess his need to turn from his sin. Upon returning home, the prodigal son would humble himself, asking if he could just be the lowest of the servants to his father. Lot would not humble himself. When the prodigal son returned home, he confessed his sin to his father. And Lot never did that. In fact, Lot never showed any inclination toward confession or repentance. There's always a cost to unconfessed sin, friends. There is always a cost for refusing to humble ourselves, for refusing to confess our sin, for refusing to be made new. Lot has refused to confess his sin. And so where does that lead him? It leads him in the opposite direction that God would have him go. To a cave with his daughters. And it's in the physical and spiritual darkness of this cave that really the unthinkable takes place. So we continue looking at verses 31 to 35. And the firstborn said to the younger, talking about the daughters here, the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come in us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, so that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. There is a cost to unconfessed sin. There is a cost to refusing to obey the Lord. Refusing to repent. The reality is that just like small cracks in a dam will turn into big cracks, unconfessed sin leads to bigger and bigger and worse and worse sins. Not only does sin have a domino effect or, or a rippling effect, if you will, but it's like a snowball in the sense that it gets bigger and bigger. It doesn't just maintain its size. It will take you to places that you never intended for it to go. And where does it stop? Where, 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 where do you draw the moral line? How low can a person go? How degenerate can a person be? Now most people have the common sense and the decency to confess and to admit that this is a very, very disturbing scene. Lot's daughters getting him drunk and committing incest with him. Most people will say that is disturbing and that is morally wrong. But the question that I have for you is, what standard do you use to determine what's disturbing and what isn't? In other words, what is it that makes this immoral? What is it that makes this morally wrong? Because if all you're basing your entire moral standards on is your opinion, well, 
Everybody's got opinions. So what makes your opinion any better? What makes your opinion any more true than anyone else's? Because honestly, if you're just a a set of walking chemical combinations or, or stardust, well, chemicals don't have an opinion. And if they do, their opinion doesn't matter. So what is the basis for determining that this is immoral? See, there's this tendency that the the secular world has, which flows out of a a worldview that uses evolution to explain everything. There's this tendency that the secular world has to try to justify behavior by looking at the animal kingdom. After all, according to their philosophy, you know, we're we're animals. We're we're, we're just like the animals. Maybe maybe just a little bit more advanced, or maybe in some ways not more advanced. But they'll try to justify certain perversions done by humans by observing that animals in the wild will portray those same perversions. People have tried to to use this type of argumentation to to, to justify things like homosexuality or even even incest. Saying that it it, it must be natural, it can't be wrong if, if animals do it. And yet isn't it strange that they won't use it to justify things like rape or eating your young? Things like that. So they're, they're still very selective with what they will look at in the animal kingdom and justify their sin with. So where do you draw the line between what is moral and what is immoral? On what basis do you draw the line where you draw it? Sometimes I look at our culture and I see the way our opinions are shifting And I wonder, is there ever going to be a point where people will say, we're never going to cross this line, and it'll actually go back the other way? You know, it's it's not at adultery. They, They won't draw the line. The culture won't draw the line at adultery. We're way past that. It's not pornography. We're way past that, too. It's not homosexuality. It used to be at polygamy. But even that line, in our day and age, has been blurred. So where does it stop? And why does it stop where it stops? The truth is that if you will not turn to God and see Him, His nature, His attributes, His commandments, His Word, if you will not turn to God and see Him as the basis for drawing moral lines, there is no objective stopping point. There is no end to the depths of moral and spiritual decline that you can bring yourself to reach. If God is not your basis for ethics, for morality, you can't say that anything, including incest, including this passage or passages that you might think are worse than this one, you can't say that anything is objectively immoral. All you can say is, it's my opinion, and everybody else has an opinion too. But objectively, only God can determine what is moral or immoral. God is the unmoving basis of ethics. And this is the way that sin works. You have a line. Everybody has a line somewhere. And you say you're never going to cross it. But then you get tempted. That line looks so tempting. You you get closer and closer to it, and all of a sudden that line starts becoming a little bit more fuzzy, a little bit more blurry. 
And, and, and you look up and you see other people who are crossing that line and you think to yourself, well, it, it can't be all that bad. And so you, you, you take a step across, just a toe. Oh, that wasn't so bad. Next thing you know, you're all the way across. Your moral line is pushed back and the whole cycle starts all over again. This is how moral deterioration happens. This is what has happened to America, thanks in large part to Hollywood. But let's be honest, if it wasn't for the darkness in our own hearts, funding what Hollywood is doing, paying them to continually push the, push the limits for us, it wouldn't have happened. But this is exactly what's happened in America. And it's exactly what happened to Lot. Lot had never taught his daughters, apparently, that there is an absolute moral line that is based on God's unchanging standards of righteousness and holiness. After all, if Lot, as a father, could justify moving his line, moving his, his, his line of moral fortitude all the way back to the point where he would invite a gang of men to rape his two daughters, what would he not be willing to justify? We would say, oh, he, 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 really passed the, he really crossed the line. What's your standard for saying that? Why do you think that? Is it just your opinion versus his? Or was it objectively wrong for him to offer his daughters to a gang of men to be raped? And what could he not justify if he could justify doing that? And that's a lesson that they learned. That's a lesson that his two daughters learned. Every major sin is rooted in what seemed like at the time only minor compromises, and this case is no different. And the truth is that the fruit just doesn't fall far from the tree, so to speak. The compromise, the tendency to compromise that Lot had demonstrated in his life over and over and over again had rubbed off on his own daughters. They have learned to make moral compromises as well. They were out of Sodom at this point, yes, but Sodom was not out of them. And with God, our value is based on the fact that we are created in the image of God. That's why murder's wrong, according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Murder's wrong because it's ultimately not just an assault on a human, it's an assault on the image of God. And that is the basis for our value, biblically speaking. That's, that's a person's value right there. It's God's image. But the greatest value that Lot's daughters believed that they had was in bearing children, because that was what the culture valued. In the culture's eyes, a woman wouldn't have been worth a whole lot, no pun intended, if she didn't bear children. And so Lot teaches his daughters to justify sin. And, and they're, they're afraid that there's nobody for them to reproduce with. Lot's afraid of living in Zoar. His daughters are afraid of being deemed worthless in the eyes of the world. And not a single one of them is demonstrating a fear of the Lord. They're all afraid of things, but their fear isn't right. Big sins are rooted in small compromises. Unconfessed sin leads to bigger and more destructive sin. And if people don't see God as the objective, unchangeable standard for moral direction, they are capable of justifying absolutely anything. 
Lot has lost everything except his daughters and, isn't it interesting, his daughters and some wine. That's what he's got. As far as we know, that's it. And so his daughters devised this plan to get their father drunk and to commit incest with him in his drunkenness. And notice how the plan is repeated. And it's shorter the second time. It's first stated in verses 31 and 32, and then it's repeated on the second night in verse 34. Listen very carefully, friends. What you can justify the first time with some difficulty will only become easier and easier and easier to justify. Think of the sins in your life. We've all, we've all sinned. But think of the sins in your life that you have justified. And think about how much easier it was to do it the second time. And easier the third time. And even easier the fourth, fifth, or millionth time after, after that. That's the way it works. Once you start justifying sin, it just becomes easier. That's the way it works. Compromise doesn't become more and more difficult. It becomes increasingly easier as time goes on and as you get more and more comfortable with your new habit. More and more comfortable with compromising. Now some people have argued that the daughters did this purely out of desperation because they believed that they were the last inhabitants on the earth. No, they didn't. They lived in Zoar. They knew that there were men in Zoar. And so they, they didn't believe that, they, that this was the last trio on earth. So really what they've done is they've created a false crisis out of desperation. They claim that they're just trying to preserve the family line. But really, let's be honest, that's just the way they justify their sin. That's the way they they justify this abomination. Lot had been compromising and and justifying his compromise, justifying his sin all of their lives. And so they learned how to justify their sin thanks to their father. Others have argued that there there must have been some ancient cultures in which incest was normal or in which incest was morally permissible. And they picked it up from there and so who are we to judge? No, there is no evidence that there is even one ancient culture that approved of incest. In fact, almost every ancient culture, not only was it frowned upon, but it was punishable by death. So what could or what should the daughters have done? Even if they did feel like they needed to preserve their family line, what should they have done? Well, first of all, they could have prayed. They could have asked the Lord to bring them a man who could help them bear children. Oh, but that wasn't something that they apparently picked up from Lot. Praying was apparently not something they had seen or something that had rubbed off on them. Almost certainly because he rarely or never did it. And as parents, that's a good reminder for us, isn't it? What they see is what they're going to pick up. Some things are easier caught than taught. And they will see your habits. They will see your weaknesses, your strengths. They see it all. And they're taking notes mentally. And they're learning. 
from you. So this is a good reminder for us. If we don't teach our kids to pray, if we don't teach our kids to study the Bible, where do you think they're going to learn it? And that's not to say that they, that they won't, because it happens. People grow up in, in non-Christian homes and become Christians. But if that's what you want for your kids, how do you expect them to learn it if you don't show it to them? If you spend your time pursuing worldly things in a worldly way, what do you think your kids are going to think that they're supposed to do? If they see you justifying just something as simple as not going to church, what makes you think that they are going to go to church regularly when they grow up? So why didn't Lot's daughters seek the Lord in prayer? Because dad had never showed them what that looks like. But more important than praying for God to give them husbands to create children and and bear children with, they never should have used society's standards for measuring their worth, their value. The legacy of a life left unchecked is, is seen here. The daughters have no sense of moral boundaries because Lot was never vocal about moral boundaries. He was distressed by the sin of Sodom, but he never took a stand against it. If he had taken a stand against it, he wouldn't have been a city official. He wouldn't have had an influential position in the city. So they get Lot drunk, and he complies. Here's some wine, Dad. He drinks it all up. He gets smashed drunk. What made his daughters think that they could get him drunk with wine anyway? I'd say there's at least a chance, probably a pretty good chance, that this was a habit that Lot had. And they knew that this was a weakness for him. They knew that they could entice him to do almost anything if they just got him drunk enough because they'd probably seen him many a night passed out drunk. And if he didn't like getting drunk, why did he do it the second night? So he gets drunk. Drunkenness is never permitted in Scripture. I'm not here to say you shouldn't drink at all. Moderate use of alcohol is, is okay, according to Scripture, but... Drunkenness is always connected to foolishness. There is nobody in the entire Bible who makes a right or godly decision under the influence of alcohol. Would this have happened if Lot had chosen to remain sober? Well, his daughters didn't think so. His daughters thought they'd have to get him drunk in order to get him to do this. And so I think we'd, be, we'd have to be pretty arrogant to think that we know Lot better than his daughters would have. That we know that Lot would or wouldn't have done something without the wine. No, the wine is kind of a catalyst here. It's a major catalyst. So I'm not going to say that you should never drink, but I am going to say that if you do, it is sin and it is foolishness the moment it starts to cloud your judgment. And where is that line? Where is the line where it starts to cloud your judgment? The reality is, you don't know. You can't say when it will start to affect you because it depends on all kinds of things. It depends on your tolerance. It depends on your weight. It depends on how much you've eaten that day. There's a whole set of of factors to take into account. Too many for you to ever know that you've crossed or that you've come close to that line until you've crossed it. So I would urge you to at least consider these things from a practical perspective and to consider, to remember, to take into consideration how many countless lives 
Satan has used alcohol to destroy. This passage doesn't indicate that drinking alcohol is wrong. There are plenty of people who have preached that. Well, you, can't, you can't even drink alcohol moderately. Here's the proof text. Let's look at Lot's life. No, this is not a proof text for, for no alcohol, for abstinence from alcohol, but it does remind us that drunkenness is wrong. It's foolish, if nothing else. If Lot had just kept it moderate or if he had abstained completely, this would not have happened. So you can justify it however you want. But the truth is that alcohol only removes inhibitions towards sin. Alcohol doesn't remove inhibitions toward righteousness. It only removes inhibitions towards sin. Alcohol makes it easier to compromise. It makes the the moral lines that we've drawn blurry. And big sins are always always rooted in what seemed at the time like only minor compromise. The final point that I want us to see is that sin has consequences that are beyond our ability to control. Lot was a righteous man, and so his sin was not held against him, and yet his sin had far-reaching consequences nevertheless. Let's look at verses 36 to 38. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Remember that this is Moses writing to the Israelites, recording this for the Israelites. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So Lot's daughters give birth to two children. Moab and Ben-Ami. And these children would grow up to be the fathers of the Moabites and the Ammonites, two groups of people who troubled God's people for centuries, who went to war with Israel for centuries, and scores of Israelites were killed in these battles. So this one night, or two nights, this one, I guess, instance in which Lot commits this unthinkable sin would have consequences that were way, way beyond his ability to control. These would be consequences that would last for generations. But did this thwart God's plans? Could God use even this heinous sin of Lot's? Yes. No, his plans would not be thwarted. Yes, he can still use this heinous sin for good. The Moabites would give us Ruth. And from Ruth's line would come David and ultimately Jesus. So the the last thing that this revolting story reminds us of is that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. What man intends for evil, God can use for good. Even the greatest good. He can use fallen man's evil intentions to bring about his own plans. Lot's life is a picture of the legacy of a life left unchecked. If you are not regularly examining yourself, if you are not regularly considering your thoughts and your values and your aspirations, if you are not regularly bringing your life back into alignment with God's Word, it will be very, very easy for you to make 
a little compromise here, a little compromise there that will eventually lead you a thousand miles away from where you started and will eventually lead you to big sin. In order for you to confront this tendency, in order for you to minimize this tendency, it starts with making sure that you are regularly saturating your mind and your thoughts with the Word of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Repair the cracks in the dam before it's too late. Maybe as you consider this story, you realize that in some ways you can identify with Lot more than you wish you could say that you do. Not in the type of sin, but in the fact that sin had this strong grip on Lot's heart. And if you can relate to Lot in this way, if sin has a grip on your life, and if you're refusing to humble yourself and turn from your sin because you fear that God would not have you, I would remind you that there is no sin, no sin that God cannot forgive. The promise of the gospel is that if we confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's remember what confess means. The word that John uses in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is homologeo. That's two words brought together. It means same word, which basically means you are coming into agreement with what God has said. What God calls sin, you agree. You would say the same word. It's sin. What God says is good, you will agree. God says it's good, so it is good. That's what it means to confess your sins. And the promise is that if we will confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our sins. Though we were red as crimson, red as blood, He can wash us white as snow. And so if you're running away from God, if if you made a commitment to Christ at one point in your life and you have spent a season running away from Him, I would invite you to come back to Him and avoid the practical consequences and the inherent unhappiness and the emptiness of pursuing worldly things. And if you have never come to Him, if you have never repented and believed in Christ, let today be the day of your salvation. Don't put it off, because by putting it off, all you'll do is harden your heart. Don't harden your heart by putting it off. Be reconciled to God by believing in Christ today. In faith, come and surrender your life to the Lord. He welcomes all who will repent and believe with open arms as a loving Father. Seek the Lord while He may be found. As Isaiah said, call on Him while He is near. And if you'll come to Him on His terms, no matter how great your sin might be, He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Father, we confess in the silence of our hearts before you, that we are sinners, that we have crossed moral lines that you have drawn 
And we have even had the audacity to play our own God at times. To think that there's a line that we, that we can draw because we know better than you do. Every one of us has done it, Lord. But we thank you for sending your Son to take our sin upon himself, bearing the wrath that we deserve in our place and giving us his righteousness. That everyone who repents and believes receives this great gift of Christ's own righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the way it teaches us. Thank you for the way it convicts us. Thank you for the way, Lord, it reminds us to keep our spiritual lives maintained, to keep our eyes on you for the glory of Christ. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.